Awesome. Hey, welcome uh, to church. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach quick uh, this morning. <laughs> worship went a little long, but uh, when worship is that good, you just don't want to quit. And so uh, the presence of God is here. You have to join yourself uh, to a church that is more committed to his presence than a program. <clears throat> right? It don't mean that we don't do our best to follow all the programs, but I said this a few weeks ago. A million times, I'll let worship go late and preaching go short. But never once, I'm going to preach long and worship short. That's not the order. <clears throat> See, worship breaks up the fallow ground of your heart. Worship is what disrupts the principalities and powers in this region. You know, six days a week, people let their worship rise in this region. And you know what it sounds like? Grumbling. Complaining, negativity, atheism, agnosticism, secularism, humanism. And one day a week the church gathers and it's our job to let our worship rise and in doing so disrupt the principalities and powers, the agreements that people have made with darkness. The kingdom of God expands through the influence, obedience, permission, authority, and agreement that we make with what God desires to do here. That's how we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. By coming into agreement with what God has already decreed. What he has already declared. What his heart is already for the region. And as we read scripture and as we uh, 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 do our best to follow in the way that we should, we should go. Allowing the spirit of God to do his best work of, of transformation in our hearts and, and in our lives. We begin to have ears to hear what God is saying about the region we're in. And when we come into agreement with what God has said. I'm telling you, it's, it, it, it rattles the bondages and the chains that the enemy has laced over this area. And, and, and for years, people have come into agreement with what the enemy has said. They have said the Northwest is a hard place for people to be believers. They said the Northwest is lost, it's dark, it's backslidden, it's spiritually cold. And what we're coming into agreement is, what, is with what God already knows, which is he is the desire of the nation. Do you know that God himself is the desire of the Northwest? Now, when people's hearts aren't turned towards God, that desire gets manifest in a lot of odd ways. It gets manifest through politics. It gets manifest through advocacy. It gets manifest through outrage. It gets manifest through pagan philanthropy. It gets manifest through a lot of other avenues. But what it's reflective of is an inner desire to know an eternal God. And that God-shaped desire, that God-shaped hole that's been placed in the heart of every person communicates uh, uh, to us this reality that God himself is the desire of this nation and of this region. And I just think it's important, and, and I know that you know this, but I think it's important that we remind ourselves that through worship we are coming into agreement with what God has always desired to do here in Snohomish and beyond in the region, all up and down the I-5 corridor, Snohomish County, King County, Pierce County, what God has always desired to do in this part of the world. And uh, it's significant, and it's prophetic what we do here in this environment. This morning, I'm going to share with you uh, out of the book of Psalms, uh, it's chapter 84 in specific. In the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 chapters that functioned as the hymn book for the nation of Israel for thousands of years. In fact, today, still, the Jews in their practice of festivals and in their practice of of, of their spiritual feasts, they still quote the songs of David, the poetry of David, the songs of Moses, the songs of Asaph, 
the songs of, of Solomon, and the songs of the sons of Korah, which we'll read about in Psalms 84. Uh, the book of Psalms is a book that has many authors. Unlike most of the books in, in the Bible that have a singular author, whether they were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the Apostle Paul, or the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch written by the person of Moses, the book of Psalms has a litany of, of authors, and it's written over a thousand-year time period. It's written in different seasons for the nation of Israel. It's written during their exodus as they're leaving Egypt looking for the promised land. It's, it's written as David is reigning over the kingdom and expanding it. It's written as Solomon, the son of David, is serving now as the king of Israel. It's written during when Saul is the first king of Israel. It's written during uh, over a thousand year time period following the Hebrew children through the highs and lows of a nation that had been called into followership of Yahweh. And in Psalms 84, a, a group of, of, of worshipers named the sons of, of Korah. It wasn't their band name. It was literally who they were. They were sons of a father named Korah. I know it, it sounds like a band you've never heard of before, but it, it, it was just their lineage. Their, their father was Korah. They were his sons, and they wrote songs that functioned as the worship guide for the nation of Israel. How many of you grew up in a church with hymn books? You know what a hymn book is? Okay, back in the day, they used to have these things called books. And you would open them, and, you, you would, and they didn't have screens. You would read them. It, it had paper in, in a book. And if you wanted to know what the worship team was singing, the worship leader would tell you, turn in your hymn book to page 185. You'd open it up, and you would find in your hymn book a, a written out lyrics for that song, and, 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 and then the congregation could sing along. Of course, through the advent of technology and, and, and a lot of other things now, we've gotten rid of the hymn books and we got the words on the screen or the words on your iPhone or you've memorized it from the latest song that you've listened to. But I want you to think about the book of Psalms like the hymn book for the nation of Israel. Hey, let's go to Psalms 145. Let's go to Psalms 1. Let's go to Psalms 17. Let's go to Psalms 84. Let's sing about, let's talk about, let's declare the character of God over the nation of Israel, and in doing so, order our atmosphere. Watch, this is why the public reading of Scripture is so important in your life. The confession of God's Word orders your atmosphere. As it pertains to the Word of God in my life, I like to pray it, I like to read it internally, and then sometimes I like to speak it out loud. I speak it out loud when I'm at work. I, I speak it out loud when I'm at home. What I found is that the Word of God interjected into any environment helps order the atmosphere of my life. Why? Because these words have power. They have creative power. When God spoke His words recorded in this book over darkness, all of a sudden galaxies were formed. Scripture says the power of life and death is where? In the tongue, in your confession of faith. And when we declare God's word over our atmosphere, it helps order our environment. That's why oftentimes the chapters in the book of Psalms, they read like emotional roller coasters. David starts out really high and then he ends up really low and then he ends the chapter really high. He talks about how his soul is in despair and how he's in the valley of the shadow of death and how he is begging God not to leave him or depart from him. 
He's communicating how his enemies are surrounding him. But David always ends his chapters with this determination, this declaration. But my soul will bless the Lord. Why? David is ordering his environment. He's declaring the words of God in his atmosphere. And in doing so, he's ordering his life. In Psalms 84, written by the sons of Korah, starting at verse 1, the Bible says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty! My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they are ever praising you. Friend, in this hour, more than ever before, we need people fascinated with the dwelling place of the Lord. Hear me. We need people fascinated with the dwelling place of the Lord. What does fascination look like? It means even if I've sung this song a hundred times, when I sing it again in this environment, my heart is still moved by the idea that the King of Glory sits on the throne of my heart. I'm fascinated by the Lord. Man, we could sing simple songs. We could sing slow hymns. We could sing faster new songs. We could sing out of hymn books. We could sing off a screen. But what fascination looks like is when I get in the house of the Lord, I'm going to allow my heart to be moved like it's the very first time. We're fascinated with the things of God. And we have become bored with God. We're so used to the programs and to the approach and stand when I stand and sit when I sit. And part of fascination looks like reading the same chapters over and over. But allowing the Spirit of God to move on your heart afresh and anew. We need people fascinated with the dwelling place of the Lord. Watch. Fascination is the result of discovery. Discovery is the result of pursuit. Pursuit is the result of hunger. And hunger is the result of revelation. And revealing the Father is what Jesus has come to do. Never grow tired of carrying the tabernacle of heaven in your heart, for it is the dwelling place of God. You know that the primary purpose of the church is to glorify Jesus. The church is not a spiritual drive through by which you show up only when you're in need of something to place your order. And hopefully the person behind the window or in this context on the stage gets your order right, else the pastor will hear about it later. The church doesn't exist to serve your need. It exists to anoint the feet of Jesus, to glorify the Father, and to move His heart. For when His heart is moved, His hand is moved. And when His hand is moved, the nations shake. The primary purpose of the church is to bring glory and honor to Jesus. Is the church involved in a lot of other programs? Absolutely. Do we have a mission to feed the hungry and clothe the poor and take care of the sick? Absolutely. Should the church be involved in community cleanups and school adoption programs and backpack giveaways? Absolutely. 
But if that becomes primary instead of secondary to a pursuit of the presence of God, then we've got our priorities all mixed up. The church exists to glorify Jesus. And when we bring glory to Jesus, his presence fills this place. And when his presence fills this place, your life, your family, and your future is forever changed. The church exists to glorify God. I love Psalms 84. I could camp in verse 1 for the next 30 years and be happy. We love the dwelling place of the Lord. Now the fact that Psalms 84 is written by the sons of Korah may mean nothing to you. <laughs> but it means everything to the people of that day who would read that chapter. Let me explain. The sons of Korah, they were from the tribe of Levi. In the wilderness, each of the tribes, there was 12 of them, had a job to do. Some were in charge of taking care of the, the food. Others were in charge of leading the military. Others were in charge of providing incense and sacrifice to the Lord. But, but, but the tribe of Levi, and in specific the sons of Korah, their job was to take care of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a fancy tent in the middle of a desert that carried the presence of God. You have to understand what's so beautiful about the new covenant. What lived in a tent that only was accessed by special people now takes residence inside your heart. The hope of glory, the person of Jesus, the presence of his spirit. But in the Old Testament, it was not so. Not because God didn't desire it, but because man could not enter in yet through the veil of his torn flesh. That's why when believers in the Old Testament died, they didn't directly go to heaven. The Bible says they went to a waiting place until the blood was spread on the mercy seat through the sacrificial atonement of Christ. And that while Christ was in the grave in three days, he marched into paradise to all of the saints who had died still believing for the promise and marched them into the gates of glory. But now we live in a better covenant, in a better reality. In fact, Scripture says, at the day that you die, to close your eyes on earth is to open them in heaven. That as soon as you leave this place, you are now in the presence of God. But yet in the Old Testament, the presence of God lived in a box called the Ark of the Covenant, carried around in a tent called the Tabernacle. And the sons of Korah, they were in charge of moving the elements that lived in the Tabernacle. The thing like the tables for the showbread, the altars for the incense, the ark, the tabernacle, the poles, the tent. They were glorified custodians. And for 40 years they followed a leader who was lost in his own backyard. Looking for the promised land. You need to understand this for a moment. It wasn't like a tent that you set up when you go camping that takes five minutes. It was elaborate. It was designed down to the very inch, the very cubit. It was given by God in the law, in the book of Leviticus, written to the Levites. It was very particular the way that God wanted it to set up. It would take hours, if not days. And every day for 40 years, it was the job for the sons of Korah to pick up the tent, to pick up the tabernacle, to pick up all the elements, and follow wherever Moses was going. Only to set it up again and realize that they hadn't yet found the promised land. They were still lost in the wilderness. And for 40 years, the sons of Korah never lost their fascination with the dwelling place of the Lord. Which means this. For you and for me, it's a discipline of our heart and our emotion to stay in a place of fascination. 
Because if you're a believer rooted, grounded in the house of God, you're going to be in this church 50, 60, 70, 80 times a year. You're going to come and sing songs that you sang last week and hear a pastor who preaches like he preached last week. And you're going to hear common themes and you're going to see common people. And the temptation of our flesh is to take what is sacred and reduce it to what is common. But remember, Jesus is in the business of turning water into wine, not wine into water. He has taken the common and baptized it in the sacred. He has taken what is, seems insignificant and baptized it in the supernatural. And the sons of Korah, with a resounding yes in their heart, declare this in verse 1 of Psalms 84. How lovely is the dwelling place of the Lord. Friend, you can do a lot of nice spiritual things, but without a love for His presence, you gain nothing. I love the gifts, but I love the giver more. I love healing, but I love the healer more. I love provision, but I love the provider even more. And any time that you receive from the hand of God, it serves as an invitation into the heart of God. That's why scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads men under repentance. It's God's kindness that he's demonstrated towards you. It's God's goodness that he's demonstrated towards you. It's God's mercy and undeserved favor that he's demonstrated towards you that creates a road into repentance. So that you might find yourself in the family of God. The sons of Korah, they say, how lovely is your dwelling place. Now the sons of Korah had a father named Korah. And that father's story is told in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. But it's not a good story. In fact, it's a terrible one. The father of the sons of Korah, he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. So Moses called Korah and the people who were a part of this rebellion. He says, stand in the presence of God and let's let God decide who's right. The Bible records in this crazy story, number 16, that the earth opens up. And swallows Korah. If you're reading number 16, you might think to yourself, look at the judgment of God. But I want you to know that there has never been a judgment from God that hasn't ever been followed up by an even greater act of mercy. And although judgment swallowed up Korah, the Bible tells us in number 16, that God preserved a line, a lineage, a heritage from Korah. And they would become sons who were raised in the presence of God. Although judgment came to their father, favor came to the sons. Which means this, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what type of family system you've been redeemed out of. Even if you feel like you've come from judgment, the mercy of God has caught up with your story. Do you know that just by a function of you sitting in this building today, 
It's indicative that the mercy of God has stamped your life. Friend, it's not common. It's sacred. The mercy of God has stamped your life. Some of you in here today, you should be dead outside the mercy of God. It stamped your life. You should have been lost outside the mercy of God. stamped your life. Oh, you've had second chances and tenth chances and a hundredth chances. But every time you thought you ran out, instead of judgment, you got mercy. Mercy's caught up with you. And the sons of Korah, reflective of their father's story, instead of getting bitter at God because of things they don't understand, this is their declaration. How lovely is your dwelling place. How many times has our declaration of who God is changed based on things that we don't understand? And yet the sons of Korah, through a disciplined spirit, make this the ethic of their life. How lovely is your dwelling place. Oh yeah, I got hurt in church, but how lovely is your dwelling place. Yeah, my marriage didn't turn out like I wanted it to. And I've been broke and bankrupt and divorced and left alone and orphaned. But how lovely is your dwelling place. That mercy's caught up with your story. And anywhere you read scripture, it communicates the ethic of those who found a love for his presence. It reminds me of the story of Mary of Bethany from the book of John, I believe chapter 12. Where Jesus is sitting in a house and his disciples are there and a woman is there and she takes perfume and she breaks it at the feet of Jesus. And the Bible says the aroma of the perfume fills the entire house. And she gets down on her hands and knees and, and she wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. And Jesus communicates over this woman and he says her worship will be a monument to me throughout all of history. That whenever people tell my story, they'll speak of an extravagant love. Maybe the most important anointing that you experience in this environment is not the one you receive, it's the one you give. Maybe, just maybe, the primary purpose of Christian life is not only to receive, but more importantly, to give. That our anointing, our worship, our affection, our attention, it's lavished on the person of Jesus. How lovely is the dwelling place of the Lord. Without the sons of Korah playing their part, the tabernacle lacked the necessary ingredients to be everything that God desired it to be. And although the part that you play might not move men, when it moves God, it shapes history. Brad, the part you play is not insignificant. Whether you're a glorified custodian or a stay-at-home mom or you're in between jobs or you're going back to school or you had to move back in with parents to save money or you're in the best season of life you've ever had. You're the most paid you've ever been. You're the most excited life has, life has ever dealt you. Right, whatever season you're in today, refuse to be moved from a place of awe and wonder and brilliance when you think about the God that we worship. How lovely is the dwelling place of the Lord. Come on, would you stand with me as we close?
Fred, the part you play is significant. It really is. The fact that you're here, it's significant. The fact that you're watching online, it's significant. The fact that you've given the offering, it's significant. The fact that you serve in one of the ministries here, friend, it's significant. And I'm going to invite you to develop a love for the dwelling place of the Lord in such a way that it moves you from just a consumer of spirituality to a contributor in the house of God. Whether you ever stand on a stage, whether anybody ever knows your day, seemingly insignificant acts of service touch the heart of God. How lovely is your dwelling place. Let me end with this thought for you this morning. We need an adjustment on our value system. In the church, we need to properly value the person of Christ, the house of God, the dwelling place of the Lord, the presence of the Most High. Because when it's the most valuable thing in your life, it orders the priorities of your environment. I'm moved by this first verse from the sons of Korah. They've seen so much. They've been disappointed, watched by a failed leader. They've seen judgment come against their family line. And here's their declaration. How lovely is your dwelling place. Could we be those people in the Northwest? Come on, let me pray for you, Father. We love you.